Thank you for listening to the Christ Church Showmans. This is Jared Sparks, one of the pastors at Christ Church Carbondale. We want to thank you so much for listening, as Ransom said, my son. And we ultimately hope that these are God-honoring. And because they are God-honoring, we hope that they are also edifying and encouraging and, and challenging to you in the best sort of way. Thanks so much for listening. Sermon title this morning is Learning from Christian Slaves, Learning from Christ. So we're going to look to the Christian slave, and then we're going to look to Jesus, and we're going to take some lessons away today from how, how we are to suffer well from them and ultimately from Christ. Uh, let's talk a few things about slavery before we get into our text today. Slavery is a historical reality in all of human history. It's everywhere. It's still pervasive today. It's not a modern invention, as some people would would like to think us uh, or like, like to teach us. Slavery is a historical reality. In every single family lineage, no matter what the color of your skin or whatever your ethnicity is, in every family lineage, your, your ancestors either owned slaves or were slaves or both. It's just a matter of time. So and just keep on going back. My, my um, family names go back to England and Wales. And it, you just keep going back in history, and at some point, my family either owned slaves or were slaves. It just, just depends on how, fa- how, how far back you go. Uh, this is the history of human beings, and sadly, human beings have been treated terribly by each other. And in fact, human history is filled with stories of conquest, victory, and defeat, and slavery. It's just a historical reality, and we shouldn't uh, be embarrassed to talk about history, the highs and lows of history. It's just there, there, there are things in history that we need to talk about. And then we need to look at the scriptures to see how we should think of them. Uh, Slavery is layered and complex. When we think about slavery, immediately we think about whites and blacks in this country. And we think about American colonial antebellum South slavery. Uh, We also need to broaden our understanding of slavery, though, to consider things like modern slavery in this world today that exists and that is pervasive around the world. Things like sex slavery uh, and also slavery like uh, between religions. So you think Irish Catholic. There were many Irish Catholics that were brought here to this country, uh, white Irish Catholics brought here to this country to be slaves as well. So when we think about slavery, there's a really broad umbrella of slavery. In fact, Tom Schreiner said this about early Roman slavery, which we're going to be talking about here this morning. Here's what he had to say. People became slaves, speaking of Roman slavery, by being captured in wars through kidnapping or being born into a slave household. Those facing economic hardship might choose to sell themselves into slavery in order to survive or to pay off debts. Many slaves lived miserable lives. Other slaves, however, served as doctors, teachers, managers, musicians, artisans, and even could own other slaves. It would not be unusual for a slave to be better educated than their master. Those who are familiar with slavery in the United States must beware of imposing our historical examples or experiences on the New Testament times since slavery in Greco-Roman context was not based on race as American slave owners often that slavery was based on race. And American history also includes discouraging education of slaves. Often American slaveholders would discourage the education of their slaves. In the Roman world, the Greco-Roman world, sometimes slaves were the most educated. Still, slaves in the Greco-Roman world were under the control of their masters, and hence they had no independent rights or existence. So we're talking about slavery, 
And in these different kinds of slavery, we have to understand this, and we have to not stutter when we say this. The Bible does not, hear me say this again, the Bible does not condemn all forms of slavery. The Bible does condemn American slavery or color-based slavery or religious-based slavery that we have experienced in history. But the Bible does not universally condemn all forms of slavery. The Bible does, however, regulate slavery. If you want to know more about this, you can refer to my sermon on Titus 2 from about four or five months ago. Just by way of, because this is so controversial in our day today, I want to make a few more statements before we get on to our text. Uh, in the context of a society in which slavery was pervasive and absolutely everywhere, this is Roman world, God is going to speak to Christian slaves, and he's going to tell them how to behave. Okay? So we want to turn our attention to these Christian slaves. We want to see what God has to say to them and the dignity in which God is, is in how he is speaking to these slaves. Because for God, as he speaks to these slaves, we, we get insight that God does not see these slaves as second Second-rate citizens. God is speaking to them as he is speaking to masters, as he speaks to men, as he speaks to women, as he speaks to Christians in general. And here's what we see in the scriptures. That the slave in scripture, the actual physical slave, is welcomed in the family of God as an equal participant in the grace of God. They come to the table together. And the expectation is, even in the context of this local church in 1 Peter, is that both slaves and freemen will be together equally as brothers and sisters in Christ. It's quite revolutionary. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 21 through 24 tells us not to become slaves if it's in our power. So if we had slavery, modern-day slavery here today, and I owed somebody a great debt, I should not sell myself into their ownership to work off that debt, even if I could work that off in 7, 10, however many years. So we are to restrain ourselves from, from that sort of, uh, we're, we're to be freemen, freedmen. And so as Christian slaves, if they can gain their freedom. In 1 Corinthians chapter 7, they're told to do so. If you can gain your freedom, do so. But what about slaves that can't gain their freedom? Are they forgotten people? And because we're talking about slaves today, we can just look up like we could last week and say, well, there's no such thing in slavery in our context today. So is this just a passage we just kind of put in the archaic catalog and, and don't look at? Uh, no, we have to say this, this has something here for us. We don't want to de devalue slaves of old, Christian slaves, who have followed Christ in their service to a master. We want to look to them and say, brother and sister, I want to learn from you and how God called you to live. We don't want to devalue them by saying this has no context and no meaning for us today. So first century Christian slaves in, Roman, Rome, in the Roman Empire, they were not forgotten. God had something to tell them. God had news for them. God had something to say to them. What about the Irish slaves or the African slaves in the early stages of our country? Well, God had something for them. He had something to tell them. He had good news for them. For us today, we, have, we don't have the obvious slavery, as I said, but we've got to learn a lot from these Christian slaves. And so for Christians around the globe that are stuck in slavery today, like right now, God has not forgotten them. God has some things to say to them. Just like last week, we just don't want to say, well, this is old, that was then, now this is now, and this is new, so we don't have to turn our attention to this. We must turn to the Christian slave, we must see God's work in them, we must honor them as brothers and sisters, and then the example here today is, is inviting all of us to learn from the Christian slave and then to be like them. 
Let me explain. Turn your eyes to 1 Peter 2, starting in verse 18. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and the gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing, when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin, you're beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. This is the word of the Lord. As a church, I know not just me or our elder team, I know that our members in this church, we want to have God's word preached to us. We want to be discipled with God's word. We want to study God's word. And here's our commitment. We don't want to have any problem passages. And whatever God's word says, we don't want to embarrass, be embarrassed or tiptoe around it. We want to say, okay, what, what do you have to say here uh, to us, God? What, what do you have to say to the Christian slave? And uh, there's a lot of good stuff here, and so we want to learn from it. Okay, first, slaves are to be subject to their masters. It says it clearly, uh, servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good but to the gen uh, and gentle, but also to the unjust. First thing we need to see today and see it clearly is that God speaks to Christian slaves, and he's using them as a positive example for all believers. Now, in the scriptures, slaves are sons and daughters of the living God. And those that are free, like physically free, we are also called slaves of God. And so this language we see in the scriptures is interchangeable, but the slave who's an actual slave is also, in this higher reality of existence, a son or daughter of the living God, if they are Christians. And they're on an equal playing field, and they have equal rights as citizens of the kingdom. And so we need to recognize that God speaks to them when they are forgotten in the Roman world or in, in the history of the world. Slaves were kind of the, the bottom of the barrel, even though they were highly educated. Uh, a slave was still subservient to the master. But here is God speaking to them. As God speaks to husbands and wives, and as God speaks to, uh, to Christians in general, and as God speaks to children, God does the slave the dignity of speaking to them as he speaks to everyone else that's a Christian. So to God, clearly, slaves are not second-class citizens. They're just as much sons and daughters of the living God. They're just as much welcome to the table to receive the bread and the wine. Now, remember, in this context, being subject to somebody, um, just like being subject to anyone, does not mean that that person you're subject to is the highest law or authority. We need to say some of these caveats because it's important to realize. The Christian slave was to be submissive to his master, even the unjust ones. However, we have to recognize, just like what we looked at last week and what we're going to look, like in, look at in submission in marriage here in the, in the coming weeks, is that there's always a higher law. And so even the one that had a master and was in slavery and was owned by this master, there's a higher law than the master, the subjectivity of the slave to the master stops when the master thinks they are above the law of God or asks the slave to do anything that violates God's law. The slave was to look to them just like we are to look to anybody that's requiring us to break God's law and say, no, 
I can't do that because there's a higher authority. So if a master was to command a slave to do something wrong, the slave is obligated to disobey that tyrant master and obey God. God's law always limits any lesser authorities. So with that limit in mind, hear these commands to slaves. They are to submit and to respect the good master and the unjust master. One of the things I I should have said last week, in this understanding of civil responsibilities as American citizens, that the emperor uh, that is supreme in our country is not Joe Biden, is not J.B. Pritzker, J.P. Pritzker, J.B., I always got the P and the B mixed up, J.B. Pritzker. JB or JP? JB. Sometimes you, you, know, you question, like, did I say that right or wrong? Um, they are not emperor and supreme in our state or in our nation. We, the people under the Constitution of the United States, play that role. However, we should always be praying for Pritzker. We should always be praying for Joe Biden. And we should be praying imprecatory psalms upon them. And we should also be praying that they would repent and believe the gospel. We should pray that they would become Christians. And we respect them as human beings. And here, in this context, the slave, it's so clear, is called to submit to their masters. Okay? So, what does that mean? What's the example, then, that's given for us to emulate? And we're going to see that starting in verse 19. For it is a gracious thing when, mindful of God, one endures suffering while suffering unjustly, suffering well. It is a gracious thing when somebody suffers well when they are unjustly treated, when the slave endures unjust suffering. Now, the master will face the penalty for that kind of crime, both in this life and before a holy God, and they will experience the wrath of Almighty God In every single slave master in the history of the world, they're going to have to stand before a holy God. And if they've not repented of their sins and trusted in Christ, they will face eternal wrath. And so, it's wrong to treat people wrongly. It's wrong to treat the slave like this. But what is the slave to do who can't get out of it? Okay, well, Christian slaves are to, in that situation, suffer that injustice while they stay mindful of God. And we're told specifically, when a Christian slave is mistreated and they're mindful of God and respectful and honoring of the Lord through that, that is an honorable and gracious thing. And we should learn from that. We should want to be like that. If I suffer unjustly for anything, even though I'm a slave of no man, I should learn from the Christian slave and be mindful for God for any mistreatment, mindful of God, and it's a gracious thing when I am mindful of God and honor the Lord and still respect people. It's a gracious thing. Let's clarify a little bit because a passage like this, it, it, you just kind of long for clarification and through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Peter's like, it's like he's saying, let me, let me just clarify. Look at verse 20. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good... And suffer for it, you endure. This is a gracious thing in the sight of God. Okay, punishment for sin is not a win. Okay, if a Christian slave in this context is treating their master sinfully and is sinning and going around acting terribly and sinning not just against the master but sinning against God and they're beaten for it, this is the negative example. We never want to face punishment for 
behavior, for bad behavior. And this is applicable to every Christian across the board. We never want in our life to live our lives in such a way where any judgment that comes upon us is, is because of our bad behavior. We don't want that to be the case about us. But when we're doing the right thing and it costs us something, well, apparently this is a gracious thing. To honor the Lord, even when you're being mistreated, is of great value. It's what it says. It's a gracious thing. When mindful of God, one endures suffering. Verse 20, this is the credit. If When you do good and suffer for it, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. When you do good and suffer for it, it's a gracious thing in the sight of God. God is looking at that and, and giving approval to that and saying, this is how you behave in the context of injustice. We should want that kind of character. We have a lot to learn from these faithful slaves in times past who honored Jesus, who, who wrote spirituals, wrote music, sang songs, praised Jesus, even through their mistreatment. And we have a lot to learn from these faithful slaves, even faithful slaves that were mistreated by their evil, evil masters. There's a lot to learn. And what it is, it's an honorable thing when men and women endure evil treatment and they love Jesus through it all. And this is something, it's a principle we see woven out woven throughout all of, all of human history. This is a glorious thing. Uh, we saw this even uh, in recent history. Um, we saw this with Pastor James Coates and Tim Stevens up north. We saw them obeying God. This is how a principle like this from God's Word applies today. When there are faithful men and women honoring Jesus in Canada and gathering as God's people and there are faithful pastors proclaiming God's word and they get arrested for that and put behind bars and honor Jesus through that. You can see a picture of this right on, uh, uh, on James Coates' uh, Instagram or his wife's Instagram where it was the week, the last sermon he preached and the family huddled up and they hugged one another and prayed and cried together as he voluntarily walked with the sheriff's department or the, sheriff, the police officers, walked into prison and he was there for, or to jail, he was there for 31 days for doing the right thing. And that's honorable. That's a gracious thing. That's a man learning from people like Christian slaves in the past who suffered unjustly and saying, I want to be like that. And here is James Coates or Tim Stevens who did the same thing and faithful pastors up in Canada just like them that we don't know their names who did the same sort of thing. And God saw these faithful slaves in American history and God saw these faithful slaves in this early Roman history or in this time in Roman history in the first century and he saw them being mistreated and yet they were honoring Christ through it. And this is a gracious thing. And so for us, God saw them and God sees us. If we're ever mistreated for doing the right thing, it's not that God has abandoned us. He's given, given us instruction in how to walk through it. And it's a gracious thing. All, all of us, all of this kind of stuff, as we're talking about being treated unjustly and yet honoring the Lord through it, all of this should be, it's like a radar in our mind. We should be thinking about certain things and we should be thinking about Christ. We should be thinking about, this, this is kind of reminding me of Christ who suffered unjustly. And that's where the Apostle Peter takes us. Here's the example. Be like the Christian slave. It's a gracious thing when you're mistreated for doing what's right. And then Peter's like, okay, th this is all pointing us to Jesus. Th isn't this what Jesus did for us? And if the God of the universe who came to this earth to be mistreated but to obey his heavenly Father perfectly, doesn't that give us some sort of energy and vigor to want to obey even if we're being mistreated for doing what's right? 
So what we see here is a foundation. We're going to get a foundation for Christian obedience. This is uh, the call of suffering. Uh, Look at verse 21. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. Now, I remember years ago reading this and asking one of my mentors, Greg, hey, Greg, what, what does this mean? Because this passage seems like I'm being encouraged to go look for suffering. Like, if I'm not suffering right now, I need to go look for it. So things are great. Life's good. Uh, boy, I really need some suffering, so I'm going to go try to find it somewhere and, and uh, go preach the gospel into some hostile territory or something like that and just, come on, man, I need to find some suffering. Because it reads somewhat like that. That's not at all what it's saying. Jesus is giving us this example of how to suffer well. And this is what we should be doing. This is the example, not of the actual suffering, but how to suffer. That's the example. The example isn't Jesus suffered, therefore you go and suffer. The example is how Jesus suffered. And that's how these slaves are to suffer. And consequently, that's how we are to suffer. Let me just tell you this. You're going to experience suffering in this life and even persecution. We've all experienced persecution in this last year, the last two years. If you don't know the definition of persecution, one of the definitions of persecution that I've uh, made made and and told you before is the same about uh, the definition of a tyrant. When somebody demands from you that you obey them over God, that's a tyrant doing that, but that's also the definition of persecution, when they are requiring behaviors of you that violate God's word. And if there's consequences for obedience or threats of consequences for obedience, the Christian is left in a situation, either in fear, I'm going to stay and not do what God's called me to do, or I'm going to risk persecution and I'm going to go do what God's called me to do, no matter what the cost. And for some of us, for the very first time over the last couple of years, we've experienced that. But I promise you, in this life, you're going to experience suffering like this, the kinds of suffering in this world that we all experience, suffering and death. All of you are going to die and all of your loved ones are going to die. It's just a matter of time. And death is a difficult thing to walk through. It's a a sickness and all the things that come in this life that are consequences of the fall and under the sovereign hand of God that are difficult to understand. But also persecution is going to come. It's come to all of us, and it's probably going to come in in greater degree in the near future. We're all going to experience it. And so this is what we should pursue. I want to suffer like Jesus suffered. The Christian slave should suffer like Jesus suffered, and so should all of the body of Christ. We want to turn our attention to Jesus and say, teach us, Lord, how are we to walk through persecution? When I'm mistreated by a friend, by a boss, by whoever it may be, how am I to walk in this life? How am I to conduct myself? Am I to do to them what they did to me? Am I to gossip? Am I to slander? Am I, what am I supposed to do? So Jesus is going to give us this example suffer well. We suffer as Christ suffered. At least that's what we're called to do for the joy set before us. We can endure in suffering knowing that our Father above sees us and will reward us. This is the calling. Now, these slaves are being called to suffer like Jesus. Christ suffered for us, and if need be, we are to suffer as Christ suffered, suffered for Christ's sake. Now, Jesus did not suffer for his sin, That's the key to everything we're talking about today. Jesus did not suffer because of his sin. And if we should suffer, if the Christian slave in the Roman Empire should suffer, it should not be because of their sin. That's the connection. So we need to look at how Jesus suffered. And this is going to, again, provide for us this foundation, this foundation for us. It's like like a bedrock foundation for how to suffer well, how to be mistreated, 
and to con conduct yourself with dignity and with honor to show that even when you're mistreated, to even when the Christian slave is mistreated, that they're a free man, that they're a free woman, that they have a heavenly father that's above that master, and that they're obeying him over their master. That was my dad, by the way. Call attention. My dad right there. It's his phone. <laughs> my dad somehow always enters into the sermon at some point during the sermon. I ended up mentioning my dad about something. So we turn to Jesus and we see how Jesus suffered. And I want you to consider Jesus here today. Um, I love getting to talk about things that would get us canceled. There's some things today that we've already talked about with slavery that would, would get us canceled. Uh, but the reason it's so important is because we turn to Jesus and we see how Jesus suffered. And like the Christian slave, we, we want to suffer well in this world. And the scriptures, uh, God never says, I'm sorry for what I'm about to say. Never says that. So we're getting into some pretty incredible truth here. The call of suffering. The call of suffering. Look at verse 21. For this you have been called, and we're going to read 21 again and then down through 23. For this, to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but he continued entrusting himself to the one who judges justly. Jesus never sinned. He never committed a sin. This is being bumped up against in our world today and among even evangelicals. There's different studies that you can look at. Ligonier Ministries does this every few years. And there's a question that was on the most recent one about Jesus living a sinless life. And did he or did he not live a sinless life? And it's a staggering percentage of people who reject the perfect life of Christ. And yet here in the scriptures, the, the scriptures declare to us that Jesus committed no sin. Not one, ever. He obeyed, not just the, to the external conformity of God's law, but the internal, from, from the inside out, the internal demands of the law. Things like love. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. You know, you can fake your way through a lot of external religious practices going through the motions, doing the right thing externally. But how many people, maybe this is your story in your life, how many people have you known who have done the right things, gone to, gone to church, uh, done Bible readings and Bible studies and, and they, they say the right thing and, and externally they're doing the right things but internally they're rotten. Just rotten to the core. And externally they look holy but internally you avoid them at all cost. They're mean. They're slanderous. They're gossips. They're just mean people. And yet they never miss being at church when the doors are open. We've all experienced people like that. We've experienced people in this world who claim to be religious. Okay? Now, there's a difference between when, when the Bible speaks of Pharisees in the scriptures, that's not talking about legalistic Christians. Okay? The Pharisees of our day today are secularists, statists, people that have religious commitments to science, people who claim the name of God but don't obey Jesus, don't follow in his footsteps. Legalistic Christians are our brothers and sisters. They are not... They're not Pharisees. However, we've all met people who do not know Christ, and it's clear by their fruits, and, uh, and yet they claim the name of Christ. It's a sad thing. Jesus, however, never sinned. External conformity to the law, internal conformity to the law, everything. 
He did everything correctly. Every thought that he thought, every moment of the day was right, even when he was tired and trying to go to bed and somebody was loud in the house. When his older brothers were picking on him or doing something annoying, or they were saying, Jesus, you never do anything wrong, you goody two-shoes. And Jesus never answered back, I'm God in the flesh, dummy. He did everything perfect. This is what the law of God demands, is not just external conformity, but internal conformity as well. And so often we don't understand the gravity of God's law. And he did not ever, Jesus never committed a sin. He never had one inappropriate thought. He never had sinful anger. Jesus had right and controlled anger and demonstrated that for us. But he never had sinful anger, ever. This is our Jesus, the Jesus who never sinned, who knew how to scream when he needed to scream. He knew how to, knew how to cry when he needed to cry. He knew how to comfort somebody who's weeping with tears. And he also knew how to come and bring theological clarity to somebody who needed theological clarity. Hey, your brother will rise. I mean, right now your brother will rise. Martha, Martha. He knew how to cry with Mary and speak to Martha. This Jesus knew how to be the lion and he knew how to be the lamb. In fact, he was both. He was the lion of the tribe of Judah who knew how to turn over tables in a holy manner. He knew how to make a whip of cords and go in and clean house. He knew how to call out the Pharisees. He knew how to call out the lawyers. He wasn't scared to look at people in the eye, men's men in the eye, revered people in society, and say, you brood of vipers. He wasn't scared to look at them and say, you hypocrites. And yet, he was tender with people. He loved people. He knew how to talk to this woman at the well, and she didn't feel abused. She didn't feel mistreated. And yet he was truthful with her. This is Jesus. He knew no sin. I want you to see it with your eyes. Verse 22. He committed no sin. If there's ever a survey or a call that asks you, did Jesus ever sin? Your answer better be no. Because you see it here today. He committed no sin. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. Friends, there's nobody like Jesus. There's nobody like him. He's the most fascinating person that's ever walked the face of this earth. And he's our savior. And when he suffered, when he was mocked and ridiculed, it wasn't because he had committed a sin. And you know what? There were people there that were assaulting him, I'm sure, saying that he had committed a sin. He called me a hypocrite. Does he know who I am? You know, in Luke 11, as he's tearing into the Pharisees, the lawyers who were standing with them said, uh, Jesus, don't you know that you're offending us also? And Jesus turns to them and he says, Woe to you, lawyers, you hypocrites. And some of those Pharisees and lawyers that were hanging around there, they remember those conversations. And I'm sure they're like, yeah, he claims to be God and he called me. I have the audacity to call me a hypocrite. Doesn't he know that I'm the one who cares about God's law? And yet... Any of the suffering he experienced, it was not because of his sin. He suffered unjustly. He was the truly innocent one. You know, we get enraged when there's perceived innocence sinned against. Uh, do you remember I explained this? I, you've maybe heard this before, but uh, several years ago, it was down in Anna. You guys remember this probably. There was a couple of ladies. That were, there was a, they were working at a church building, and these guys broke in and beat up these ladies. Do you remember that? Um, do you remember the thought inside of you that what kind of filth 
the scum of the earth beat up old women, you know? Or when you think about crimes against children, or they don't want to even go there because we just get boiling hot over stuff like that, right? When innocence is sinned against, we, enrage, we get just angry. And the problem with the world is that the problem with the world and many uh, Christians who have devalued their understanding of the cross is that we really don't believe in the innocence of Jesus. He was the truly innocent one. You know, if uh, there's a mean boss and somebody goes, I'm going to stick it to that boss. I'm going to go, you know, knock him out. You know, like, you know, it's probably not the best thing to knock out that boss, but it's kind of understandable because we've all had mean bosses and it's kind of like, you know, we're all with you a little bit. Like, yes, I, I, I'm glad I didn't do it. Glad I don't have charges for battery against me, but I'm glad somebody knocked out that mean boss. You know, there's, because it's, it's, it's sin against somebody that you think deserves it. But these little old ladies at the church in Anna, really? Like, what kind of filth does that? And here's the thing. You and I were the filth, way worse than that, that sinned against the greatest man who ever lived who never ever sinned and he lived every day for you and you and I were the ones that spit in his face he was the one that was mistreated and it was we who mistreated him it wasn't just those centurions it wasn't just those religious leaders it wasn't just the people in the city of Jerusalem it was me and you But, I, you know, internally, this internal judge is, nah, but I am better than those guys. But I did that to my master. I did that to the king of the universe. I sinned against him. And yet, when Jesus was mistreated, he did not sin in return. I mean, talk about Jesus, the man, the God-man, fully God, fully man. And we have pictures of people that we revere down through history who have conducted themselves with honor. And sometimes those pictures of people in history get captured in film. And these film scenes are like these epic moments. Braveheart's got many of them. Gladiator's got many of them. Are you not entertained? How can you not hear Maximus or see that scene? Especially the men in the room are just rising up like, man, give me the people to fight. You know, <laughs> like, like, watch out. You know, Jared's arrived. You know? <laughs> And here is Jesus. He was sinned against and did not sin in return. This is amazing courage. This is otherworldly, otherworldly valor. This is our Jesus. This is the example that's set before us. This is the example given to Christian slaves. Here's how you're to suffer because Jesus did this and he did it for you. He entrusted himself to his father, the world around him, reviling him. He knew his heavenly father and wanted to obey him. And so how am I supposed to suffer well in persecution, though? Because that's Jesus. What about me? You know, because when I'm tired, babe, when I'm tired, if you kids don't get to bed now... I mean, it's going down, you know, like, get in bed. Or if something gets in the way of me getting in bed, I'm just, I, I mean, when I'm tired, you guys know me. If you've been at my house and it's like eight, like, come on, guys, let's go. 
Get out. <laughs> Throw you out. That's right. Come one, come all, but come 7.30, you're gone. Uh, Jesus knows how to suffer well. And he does it perfectly. And so this is where the concrete foundation gets poured for us. I don't want you to ever forget today. Holy Spirit, please just bring us back to this foundational text because we're going to suffer. We're going to be persecuted. And God, help us to remember this as we get into this passage, that you would help us to stand, to be men and women who don't revile in return. Who men, men and women who, who follow in your footsteps, Jesus, of being the lion and the lamb. And at times, know how to be the lamb. And uh, at other times, know how to be the lion. Give us strength uh, as we look at this. In Jesus' name, amen. Here's the good news, friends. This is the foundation uh, to actually become people like this. To actually be like these slaves. Oh, to be like these slaves who entrusted their souls when they were being mistreated. They entrusted their souls to their master. They really did. We have faithful testimony, and we want to be like that. The good news. Look at verse 24. He himself bore our sins. He committed no sin, and yet he bore the punishment for sins. And whose sins? Not his. Our sins. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. This is the good news. He bore our sins. What he suffered is what we should have suffered. It's a visible demonstration of what our life is merited. You think you're a pretty good person? You deserve the wrath of God. Have you ever wondered what your sins have warranted from God? You think your sins have been weighed in the balance and, and actually you, you deserve reward from God? He bore our sins. Whip for whip, the wrath of God coming upon the eternal one. Hell itself, eternal hell, in a time-space continuum, the eternal one faced hell itself because of your sin and mine. I deserve that. I reviled. I sinned against a holy God. I deserve nothing from God at all. And yet he bore in his body my sins. All of my sins. Those pestering sins, the sin of being upset at 7 o'clock, 7.30, or being irritable. The sin of lust. Sin of pornography that I'd seen 10 years of seeing 10 years removed from that. And uh, He took those sins upon himself. My pride, arrogance is just pervasive in my life, hid with humility. Um, and Jesus died in my place. 
We just found out that Jesus didn't sin. And yet on that tree, our sins were represented. This is substitutionary atonement. We did wrong. We sinned. We deserve that. We were the ones that sin. We, we did that. And we are the ones that sin when we suffer. Even as Christians, we are the ones that struggle to obey and entrust our souls to the faithful one, to our heavenly father. We are the ones that struggle. To, that's a sin. Not suffering well is a sin. Even as a Christian, complaining when I'm treated unjustly rather than entrusting my soul to my heavenly father. That's a sin for which Jesus died. And he carried it on the tree. We did wrong, we sinned. Jesus died for our sins. Now I want you to keep in mind the words, our sins. Because this passage, if you notice, when the Bible talks about the cross, it's, it's particular and it's personal. He died for our sins. And so often what we do is when we see the word our, we think that means everybody and all across the world. Our means just all of humanity. It does not mean all of humanity. He died for our sins. It's always in the context. Peter and Paul, the New Testament authors, never use the word our or us as humanity. It means believers, the beloved, Christians. So non-Christian, I need you to hear me. If you don't know the Lord today, or if you just are religious or spiritual or whatever people call themselves today, you might hear this archaic, this is the truth, and you will remember this for all eternity, this day. And if you turn from him and do not come to him, you will remember it. It will echo through all eternity. You cannot say at this moment that Jesus died for your sins. If you've not repented and trusted in Christ, you cannot say that He bore your sins on that tree. If you have not been born again, your sins are still counted against you. Right now, your sins are counted against you. And if you die without Christ you will face the wrath that Jesus faced. That's what this world disbelieves. And you will pay the penalty of your sin. But for those who are in Christ Jesus, this is the glory of penal substitutionary atonement. Jesus took our punishment on that tree. Every bit of it. And for those who are in Christ Jesus, you have this great hope of eternity because of what Christ did for you. Jesus died for every one of your sins, every one of your future sins. There's not a single one of them that he did not die for. God's wrath has been satisfied, and you have an eternal home. This is redemption because not only do we get justification, not only do we get adoption, welcomed into the family of God, but here's the neat thing about this passage. The power of sin has been broken, so this is our foundation for how to suffer well. This is the foundation for how Christian slaves suffer well, even when they're mistreated. This is the, this is the foundation for it, because Jesus died to do something. He bore in our sin, in his body, bore our sins in his body in that tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. Jesus did that. What Jesus did, the consequence, one of the many infinite consequences of that, is that we are delivered from the power of sin. He did this that we, this particular language again, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. 
We are dead to sin and alive to Christ. Sin does not own us with its tentacles holding on to us in the way it did what it used to. In the way it did when we were dead in our trespasses and sins. It does not mean that we no longer sin. I wish it did, right? It does mean that we have a promise that there will be a day that we, you and me, with our names, actually don't sin ever again. That's where we're going. That's, to, to be dead to sin and alive to Christ is the promise that our actual names, there's going to be a day that for the eternity of our existence, the vapor, we struggle with sin. But for all eternity, we will not struggle. Our names will not struggle with sin because the power of sin has been unlocked. It's been taken away. And Jesus took those chains that had us bound down, even the Christian slave, those spiritual chains that had us bound down to the ground and, and had us limited in our own will. We only wanted to sin. We only hated God. We didn't want to walk with him. And what did Jesus do through the cross? Jesus Rip, it's like, I've used this before, I've talked to you about this before, but if you've ever seen a machine that can just pull metal apart and it doesn't hesitate at all when it's pulling it apart, there's just no strength whatsoever in that chain compared to that machine. And here is the grace of God, the power of the cross, that so just took the chains of sin away from us. It's just like it was nothing. Just broke those chains and set us free. We still struggle with sin, don't we? But the power of sin has eternally been broken in our lives. We are now dead to sin and alive to righteousness. And so it does mean that within us, the very presence of the Holy Spirit, which is not mentioned here, but in other places in the Scripture, now that we are infilled with the Holy Spirit, we are now following Christ. It means these slaves are now free to suffer like Jesus. It means we are free to become like these suffering slaves. Obedient, even when mistreated. We're dying to sin. We're alive in Christ. So I can repent of my sinful attitude when I'm tired. I should be different. I don't want to be as irritable when I'm as tired. I still want you guys to get out of my house. But I don't want to be <laughs> as irritable. And I say that. I love having people at our house. I hope you know that. I love you. And I'm thinking, gosh, they think I really don't like them or something. I, I love you. Um, but there should be, as I get older and walk with the Lord... It shouldn't be that I get old and crotchety. Okay? It should be that there's spiritual life developing more and more and more. Certainly the struggle with sin is going to be there until we're fully, fully, fully delivered. But we're alive in Christ, man. And we can suffer well because we are alive in Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit. So these slaves can suffer like Jesus suffered because of what God is doing in them. It says, by His wounds we have been healed. By his wounds you have been healed. Now, in Ephesians 2, our spiritual condition is spiritual death. When I was in college, I heard our spiritual condition was only a disease, and I railed against that because that you're, you're, you're spiritual, you're just diseased and you're sick, and Jesus comes and makes you well and brings you spiritually health, like makes you spiritually healthy. And, uh, but th there's an element of truth there that we were spiritually dead and we were spiritually diseased. And sick. And what does Jesus come to do? Like he comes in the demonstration of this through the apostle, or through the through the gospels, is Jesus bringing physical sick, physical wellness, like healing people, that he would declare himself the one who could forgive sins. 
And here, this connection of being dead to sin and alive in Christ is connected to being spiritually healed. We are healed. So we were spiritually dead and now we're alive. We were spiritually sick and now we are spiritually well. We're healthy. And it's compared with this sickness and health. Um, so Christ has come and he has brought healing. And uh, we need to, in verse 25, remember some things. The, the slave, the Christian slave, and every Christian needs to remember this because there's times we forget it. Verse 25, for you are straying like sheep, but now, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Um, these slaves and every Christian needs to be reminded that we were a straying sheep. We were straying, walking places we shouldn't walk, walking to that cliff, walking to that wolf. And through God's grace, we have returned to the shepherd and overseer of our souls. Now, if I was a Christian slave, I'm not. I can't. It's hard to even act like think about that. Um, but God spoke to them. He's like, here's how you conduct yourself. Here's when you're mistreated, look to Christ. You say, well, boy, boy, that's an unfair thing. Why didn't God just immediately make them not slaves and freemen? I don't know. Uh, but I know that there's a way that a slave, an actual slave, was to live like a freedman. And he was a son or a daughter. She was a son or a daughter of a living God. And uh, I want to learn from my faithful brothers and sisters of old. And these slaves had an earthly master, but they also had a greater master, the master Jesus Christ. And Jesus is the master and he is the shepherd, and he is the overseer of their souls. And he protected them, and he oversaw the welfare of his sheep, even the slaves that were in his service. Even in our suffering, Jesus is taking care of us. He is watching over us. That's what shepherd and overseer means. And if that's the case, if he suffered for me, and if I know that, the next time I'm mistreated, by the power of the Holy Spirit, I don't have to live like I'm dead to sin. I can live like I'm alive to Christ. Let's pray.